1: Hey there, I'm Jason Gotts and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Since 2008, Big Think has been sharing big ideas in little doses from some of the most creative thinkers on earth. The Think Again podcast takes us out of our comfort zone. Big Think's producers surprise our guests and me, your host, with ideas that we're not prepared to discuss. I've really been looking forward to today's conversation with... Nikhil Goyal, he's a journalist fighting not so much for education reform as for an education revolution. At 20 years old, he's the author of Schools on Trial, How Freedom and Creativity Can Fix Our Educational Malpractice. He's been invited to speak at Google, Stanford, Cambridge University, the Clinton Global Initiative, and more about his contention that our current public schools are systemically harmful to children and his ideas for what to do about it. Welcome to Think Again, Nikhil. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I, I, I honestly have really been looking forward to this. I think a lot about education. My grandmother was a guidance counselor in Philadelphia public schools for like 30 years. I taught in Brooklyn middle schools for three years. Taught in community colleges in Brooklyn and Manhattan for another few years and uh, have a child who's eight years old in the New York City public school system. So (laughs) lots of thoughts about all this complex stuff. Um, I think the best way to start, yeah, let's start with there's a small segment in your introduction that I hoped that you would read for us. This is sort of a warning to parents.
2: In the packet for kindergarten parent orientation, most schools should add a visible disclaimer. If you send your child to a traditional school, there are extremely high odds that he or she by his or her high school graduation will become depressed, stressed, suicidal, unethical, shamed, disrespected, and physically and verbally abused, have low self-esteem, suffer from an eating disorder, get hooked on a prescription drug, be bullied, become emotionally deprived, less curious, creative, and happy, internalize that they are worthless, stupid, and a failure, and or come to detest learning. Is that a risk you are willing to take?
1: Strong words, Nikhil. Have you received any death threats from Ivan <laughs> Moskowitz
2: yet?
3: <laughs> uh, not that I'm familiar with. <laughs>
1: um, yeah, I mean... First of all, I wholeheartedly agree with all that. You know, you write that schooling has a lot of overlap with prison and that all of the things that we're doing to try to reform education are just kind of like tweaks at the right. margins. Maybe you could say a little bit about what it is that you think ought to happen.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, my, the basic thesis of the book is that the American conventional school system is one of the most oppressive, anti-democratic institutions of modern times, and, right. and so yeah, it does. I, I, I argue it does crush the creativity and the curiosity uh, in children, and I compare them to schools for a number of reasons. One is that kids tell me this themselves; they feel that I feel like I'm in a prison. I mean, I felt like it, and on top of that, the structures of prisons and schools I think are really quite similar in that. I've heard from people that school buildings and prisons are designed by sometimes the same people and they look very similar. <laughs> right. um, and so... Uh, and,
1: Certainly my son's school looks <laughs> like a prison. Yeah. There
2: you go. And I mean, in the schools and prisons themselves, the inmates, if you could say, they, they have very little freedom right. or, or autonomy. I mean, there's right. a study that I cite in the book by Robert Epstein that found that students in school are put under two times as many restrictions as inmates in prison. I mean. Two right. times as many restrictions. Uh, and then the fact that you're kind of forced to be there by law. 12, 13 years of compulsory schooling. Right. Um, so I think there are major similarities between the two institutions.
1: Do you think it's possible to manage a school that would actually be good for children on a national scale? Does it have to be managed locally? Does it have to be school by school?
2: Yeah, it's an interesting concept because in a, in a very pertinent topic, especially with the presidential election, And uh, President Obama he signed the Every Student Succeeds Act in December, and this was basically a, a major rollback of the federal influence and in power over education policy. Right. And so basically what the law said was that it gave the state the control to opt into the Common Core or not. And I, I think that's a good thing in some ways. I, I'm a supporter of moving away from the federal control of education. I think it's had a lot of devastating effects. For example, the No Child Left Behind Act, sure. as well as the Race to Top Act, increasingly gave more influence and role to the federal government at the expense of local districts and states. But at the same time, we should also be wary that just giving them control of the states and local districts is not kind of a panacea. Many of the same issues can still arise in those situations. Right. If if there was a section of education, one of the things I've been campaigning actually, I organized a campaign to oppose President Obama's nominee for the Secretary of Education, John King, but if Obama appointed somebody who a progressive thinker, for example, I mean I cite a right. lot of people who I admire, people like Deborah Meyer, who started the Central Park East School in, in New York. And right. is major progressive advocate, people like Sirkin Robinson, and and even just like people who are more progressively minded and, and more adapted to the needs of students and teachers. I mean, if there was a national leader who argued for those things, I would be totally behind that. I mean, it's quite interesting. I just wrote a piece for Salon about Bernie Sanders. And Bernie Sanders in the 1960s and 70s actually was somebody who was arguing for a more progressive form of education. He wrote in a number of pieces. In 1969, he had just fathered his son. He was arguing that conventional schoolings were oppressive, they were killing kids' curiosity, that he was actually opposed to compulsory schooling. When he ran on the Liberty Party ticket a couple of years later, that one of the ideas on the platform was ending compulsory schooling. Uh, So he was very concerned with the coercive powers of the state to basically kind of indoctrinate and mold certain individuals for their whims. And we should also recall that this was the time of the the Vietnam War protests and just massive civil disobedience in this country. Um, The purpose of schooling should not be to to fill the slots for the industrial capitalism or this war machine. It's to create a population that is gonna disrupt and be subversive to the kind of authoritarian and oppressive economic, political, and social systems that we have in place. And it was Kozel who interestingly said that the purpose of American schooling is not to produce a man like Henry David Thoreau. It is to produce a man like Richard Nixon, and a population that would elect a man like Richard Nixon. (laughs) And so the intents of conventional schooling were, I argue, from the inception all the way from the 1850s, was not to create free-thinking, curious people. It was always to create a certain type of individual who would be docile, follow directions, fit into the social order, and inculcated to American society because it's kind of interesting because if you look at the reasons why the system was set up, one of the things, I mean, apart from the Industrial Revolution and the kind of economic trends in the post-Civil War era was that they had a massive surge of immigrants and they fear that if you didn't inculcate them or Americanize these immigrants, they would unleash social unrest. And so we needed to make them fit in, make sure they follow directions. And so the school system was one of the major primary vehicles for that to happen.
1: And what's funny is that and then we should get on to the second part of the podcast. But what's funny is that all of this seems intuitively obvious. It seems like it should be intuitively obvious that human beings learn best under conditions where their curiosity is engaged, where they're given choice, you know, uh, that they don't learn best in lockstep. And yet here we are in 2016, you know, not knowing these very obvious things. There's so much more to talk about there, but all of that is in your book, or much of it is discussed in your book, Schools on Trial. Now we should get to the second part of the show, which is a total departure. You are a man on a mission, but here we are going, we are digressing, and sure. we're going to encounter three surprise video clips on various subjects and just have an open-ended Great. conversation. Yeah. On all right. Okay, so this first one yeah. is comedian Paul F. Tompkins. Okay. And he's talking about political correctness in
0: comedy. I think you can make jokes about anything, but you have to accept that there will be people who don't like it. So you can't be surprised if someone doesn't like a thing you said that, you know, you're making jokes on a controversial topic. I think there's a lot of people who court that and they want that. But there's some people who do feign outrage at this or they're genuinely feeling like how dare you tell me what I can and cannot joke about. But I would say in most cases audiences are not telling them you can't joke about this. What they are saying is that wasn't funny. Comedians have to recognize that humor evolves and times change and you can't stay stuck in the same place for too long because then you're irrelevant. It's very easy to say oh people are too uptight now. But the fact of the matter is, these people are the people of today. And you might be a person of yesterday if you can't adjust and you can't be in tune with what people think is, is funny anymore.
1: I think it's very interesting and very complicated. You know, this issue of, like, who gets to silence who.
2: Yeah, no, it's, it's interesting. I mean, there has been, obviously, a lot of backlash against some of these issues happening on college campuses. I mean, what was a couple of months ago at Yale, they had the— right. Um, they
1: surrounded the wife of the dean. surrounded so like the wife of the dean. Uh, no, the dean. They surrounded because the de- his wife had right and, r- and because his wife basically
2: idea. what happened. She sent this email on Halloween. She is a, her name is Erica Christakis, I think. Right. And she, I think she's the master. She calls it the master of Yale, one of the colleges, okay. the residential colleges. And she sent this email, and she's an early childhood. Educator, she written about play and learning and things like that. She sent this email out, uh, basically saying that isn't there some kind of room for offense? Like she was referring to the, right. the Halloween costumes. Right. Like some, isn't there some room f- these for kids to wear these not offensive or racially uh, sensitive right. like costumes dressed in
1: blackface right. or something? Right, that, and, <laughs> and I
2: mean, look, I did not, I did not support that email in any form. But I mean, the bigger issue is is something that I think the media doesn't often get to, which is right. that students of color on college campuses have faced massive institutional racism like that's something that nobody i mean they want to hide it behind trigger warnings and and safe spaces and and political correctness the issue in my mind is institutional racism right that's what i care about and that's what i'm going to address i'm not going to talk about safe spaces. i'm going to talk about the fact that kids on college campuses feel number one that the institutions that they are part of do not respect them they don't have diverse faculty i mean yale is a textbook example of that where there's very few African-Americans on faculty. Right. They just had the first African-American dean, I believe. Students also confronted him at Yale. I mean, and, and the thing, like, those confrontations and the reason why there was so much backlash was not just about this Halloween email. It was the right. fact that, I mean, there have been examples at Yale where African-American kids have been harassed by fraternities or not been allowed to participate in certain activities because they were black. I mean, so, like, right, right. that's the issue. Right. I mean, that's right, right, what right, people, right, right. that's what oftentimes right. white and, people, and
1: frankly, like, as far as the email, email goes, like, You know, it's a question of, like, what is the necessity? Do you really need the freedom to dress in blackface on Halloween? Like, what do you gain by that as opposed to perpetuating the harm? And
2: she was, I mean, she's somebody who tried to compare what toddlers and and young children experience with so-called costumes and adults in a college campus. And so the relationship was very inappropriate in my mind. Um, I mean, she's repeatedly, I mean, this is what very frustrated me the New York Times in an interview with her. A couple of weeks ago, and she was like, I... Been so appalled by the reaction, to this <laughs> as opposed to why people were were so frustrated and alienated by what she had written. I mean, right, she has learned nothing. She has learned nothing, <laughs> right. absolutely nothing. She's like so funny because she was she, she was quoted in this saying: people walk past her, she keeps her head down the whole time. And right. She's, she said, "I'm colorblind now," and like that's the oh worst thing god. you could say. Like I don't see color. I don't see things around me anymore. Oh my um, god! But she's learned nothing. I mean, nothing. Absolutely nothing. And she wrote she actually wrote this book that just came out like like a week before mine, on early childhood. But I think people in education, especially around the ideas of the Black Lives Matter protests and and the whole fight for racial justice, which I'm a strong supporter of and also participated in, I believe that you cannot believe in a true transformation of education without having a strong racial and social justice agenda. She doesn't understand the effects that racism have on children of color. She's refused to listen to those pleas. And so I think the ideas of of trigger warnings and safe spaces is an abstraction. It is not something that is looking at the true justification and the true inherent problem at hand. And it's easier to talk about free speech. It's easier to talk about political correctness as opposed to tackling head-on the problems of racism on college campuses.
1: Sure, sure. And I, I mean, you know, progressive education, you know, democratic participation is a central concept. Right. Like, it's part of the curriculum, essentially, to focus on equal participation, equality, right. you know. Well, it's Having voice, not being, not disenfranchising some people. Yeah, no,
2: absolutely. I think it's, I mean, one of the arguments I make in the book is that there's a great quote by Alfie Cohn, who basically said that the American education prepares you to live in an authoritarian dictatorship. (laughs) I mean, like, and Yaakov Hecht, another uh, Israeli educator, has made that point. Like, we're trying to basically prepare kids for a life where they're controlled and, yeah. and governed by some upper authority, as opposed to a democracy. I, I cite this quote, in, in and look at the history of American education in the 1850s and when it yeah. started. There was a massive backlash against compulsory schooling when it right. first started. The working class was not in favor of a compulsory school system. Right. And one of the major critics of that system, because the system was modeled after Prussia, the Prussian education right. system, one of the big critics was a man named Orestes Bronson, who was political leader in Massachusetts, he said, why should we be imitating despotic Prussia? In our country, we do not look for the government for instruction or advice. The government looks to us for how they should operate.
1: What, um, what one of the things I was wondering throughout reading your book was like, if real progressive education were instituted on a national scale in America, what would future American society look like? I have no idea. Right. Like, first of all, would there be anyone to work in like the giant prudential right. office building? Would we have Bean counting status, <laughs> statisticians. <It's just> like, <laughs> what would people? What would these right. kids grow up to want to do? And what would the world look like? Yeah, I have no idea, is, but it's quite right. exciting to imagine.
2: That, that's not. That's really another fundamental question. <laughs> because like, if you're gonna have free thinking <laughs> people, like they're not gonna go work in minimum wage jobs. And I think what the progressive schools really do a great job with is preparing kids for a life of self-sufficiency and self-determination, where they right. have to make decisions. I think one
1: adaptability, of the, Adaptability. You know, adaptability,
2: yeah. because one of the things, one of the major flaws of traditional schools, and again, another quote from Alfie Cohn, he said that the best way to prepare kids to make decisions is to make decisions. And we never <laughs> make decisions, we never have true responsibility or making decisions in schools, because it's all laid out for you. Right. You have to go to this period, this time, you to go to this class, it, no ifs ands or buts like that's it like no right. no, no no choice. Yeah, yeah there's no refusal on, on your part so the the schools need to let kids make decisions and take
1: responsibility I definitely agree and um, so I think yeah I think let's see what the next yeah. what the next video is that they have for us okay so this one is entrepreneur Jesse Itzler a lesson in loyalty
4: in your 20s everybody's rising up the ladder And in your 30s, the cream continues to rise and others stay here. And in your 40s, you're really many times in a position of power or real leadership. It's so important to maintain those relationships in an authentic way. I'm a thousand on my SAT guy, but I've been able to compensate for a lot of that through relationships and keeping great relationships and being able to contact people now that are in positions of power. 20 years ago, I would have never thought. When I was starting uh, Marquee Jet, even before Marquee Jet, I was in the music business and I was partners with a guy from Run DMC. And he said to me that he was working with 18-year-old kid at the time who was a boxer and he needed an internship. So he asked me if he could work as an intern. And I said, of course, his name was Curtis. Eight years later, Curtis became 50 Cent. And I remember when we started Marquee Jet, he was a guest on one of the flights. So I had them write a note with a bottle of champagne. It said, Curtis, you're never gonna believe this, but you're in one of our airplanes, and this is Jesse Itzler, and congratulations on your success. The next day, I got a note saying that he had changed in his rider that he would only fly with marquee jet. But it just reinforces the story that you never know what people turn out to be, and loyalty always rewards itself.
1: I don't think schools do a very good job at all of teaching kids about the importance of relationships, yeah. about the importance of being in community. My, my son, you know, has like lessons on community and it's like, who's a community helper? The right. police are a community right. helper, you know, or whatever, <laughs> right, you know? But like, like, as far as actually, you know, real human relationships, right, right. loyalty, honesty, trust, like, and i feel like that's something that could be taught yeah. actually even though some people are naturally better at it than yeah, others yeah
2: yeah no it's it's a really good point i think that in a lot of schools today you have institutions because they're so big and they have so many kids there's not enough opportunity for those real relationships to happen between students and teachers i mean i went to a high school what was it it was 500 550 kids per class um wow. so you had 4 2000 kids in a school and so like how in the world are you going to have Real strong relationships with teachers. I had right. really strong relationships with two of my teachers. And then after school, I mean, I, I think I had the most valuable experiences in high school, engaging in forensic speech and debate, and I was a cross country runner, still a runner today. Those experiences. That was the best part of high school for me. I, yeah. I was always waiting to like get done with the nine periods. <laughs> because one is that I w- there wasn't aid segregation. So I would talk to ninth graders and twelfth right. graders. Like there was just a massive mix of people together. Yeah. Uh, I was doing things I really liked. Uh, I was learning things I was really interested in. Like I was I love foreign policy yeah. and, and international relations and, and domestic issues and all those things I was passionate about. And that's something I did not ever get in the regular school day.
1: That's really interesting. Yeah, for me, it was the drama club. And like, there that, you, you know, right. again, right. like peripheral to the regular school day. But that's where I met older kids. That's where I formed deep relationships. Yeah. Because there you're working, you're collaborating with other kids. You have responsibility if you go out on stage and you don't say your lines. Everybody, right. everyone is down. But most importantly, it's,
2: you're opting into that. Like you have, and you have the freedom to quit that. Right. Like that's the thing that I think is very different. Like nine period schedule, you can't quit that. Right. But this, you can quit. And but even when you have that freedom to quit, you still stay with it. A lot I, of people.
1: I think it's both things. I mean, yeah. there's the love that draws you right. to it, as you say, and the choice, yeah. and the freedom. But I mean, even in the structure of the thing itself, right, right. like you're working with a team, you're working with yeah. other people. You you're actually are given some responsibility, responsibility in a yeah. classroom. Right, right. You know, you just sit there more or less, and and they they talk at you. So how can you become invested? Right, right. There's no reason for you to be there. I hear that all the time.
2: What I tried to do with this book and just my other projects is elevate student voices. I mean, they're, right. they're lost. They're not considered. And so I give this example. I speak to a lot of these kids, Spent some time in Philadelphia in this very poor neighborhood in this one progressive school. And the kids told me, they were all former dropouts. They dropped out of traditional schools. And they all told me, like, I go to school... First thing I see, it's like 12 degrees outside. Right. And I, I walk to school, it looks like a prison, first of all. Right. I walk to school and there's police officers standing out there, a group of them. They're gonna harass me, they're gonna stop and frisk me, they're gonna look through my things. Number one, 7.30 in the morning, deal with that nonsense. Yeah. And then I had to go through a metal detector, take off all my jewelry, look through all my stuff. And then it's already like 8 o'clock by the time that finishes. I'm already half an hour late to my class like this is you And how right? yeah what kind of Like why do I need tone to, have you right, set for
1: your day right. like you're so depressed It's like why do I need to there, go right?
2: through this nonsense yeah, 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 yeah. for to get an education where I'm just bored to tears like no wonder kids drop out of this institution yeah, yeah, because yeah. and I mean, so these kids, they 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 want something different. They're basically crying out. Like I think the dropout rate is like. Uh, Sir Ken Robinson, he he had this really great quip. Sir had, Ken Sir Robinson, Robinson yeah. he he endorsed the book. I am very happy to hear that. Uh, yeah, <laughs> but he's, he's great. He's great. And but he was basically making this point like. I forgot what the drop by rate is, but it's a very high percentage of kids that drop out, especially in poor communities. He said that like, imagine if that was like a business and like you had every year, 30% of your customers leaving that business. (laughs) Is that an indictment on those customers or is there something wrong with yourself? Yeah, yeah. The schools don't somehow believe that. Like They're like, oh, it's the kid's fault. They they don't want to be here. They don't want to pay attention. They're lazy. Like, not for one second do they, real, do they think, like, oh, this is actually, it's actually me. It's actually right, my fault right, why right. they're going through these, these processes. Or so, they yeah. do,
1: or they, even if they know, right. they don't feel they don't empowered yeah. to do anything right. about it. They don't know what to do about yep. it. I mean, the, the problems are, as you say, so systemic. It's sort of hard to know what direction to go without restructuring the whole thing from the bottom right. up. Right, right. Yeah. Well, more to say on that, but I think let's, let's see what the yeah, third sure. video is. Yeah. And this is Helen Fisher, Senior Research Fellow at the Kinsey Institute. Okay. Here's a neurochemical profile of three presidential <laughs> candidates <laughs> and their supporters.
3: Of course, I'm extremely interested in the, the biological aspects of Donald Trump, uh, Hillary Clinton, and, and Bernie Sanders. Well, Trump is all testosterone. This is why Putin likes him. The tough-mindedness and the analytical, spatial understanding is all high testosterone, and that's Donald Trump. I think Hillary Clinton is also high testosterone. She's direct, uh, she's decisive, she's somewhat warlike, but she also has quite a mix of the estrogen. She she cares very much for women. Uh, Bernie Sanders seems to be very expressive of the estrogen system. He's all loving and caring, and Putin won't understand him and he won't understand Putin. The more socially skilled, of course, is Bernie Sanders. And very often a high estrogen person can run circles around the high testosterone person because they're so skilled at negotiating and and working things out. So I wouldn't say that Trump would be any better at getting something done with Putin than Sanders, but they're gonna do it in a very different way.
1: Totally great. <laughs> yeah. That was the best one. <laughs> I, I, I think I agree with you. I mean, any framework is kind of reductive, like whenever you're looking at anything through the lens of, say, neurochemicals right. or whatever, it's a little yeah, yeah. reductive. <laughs> but like the idea that, that Bernie Sanders is high estrogen and that Clinton is somewhere in the middle, I mean that that does make a lot of sense to me.
2: Yeah, no, I I I think I would agree with that strongly. Gawker did this expose a couple weeks ago where They found emails between a Clinton State Department spokesperson and a reporter and this reporter was covering like a Council of Foreign Relations speech of Clinton's, I think, and he okay. wanted an advanced copy and, and the Clinton uh, advisor basically said, we'll give it to you if you put in certain words about Hillary Clinton in that profile. It was like... Right, 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 like right. Was, and Coercive. The, yeah, yeah, and yeah. he was writing this for The Atlantic and so like this was not acceptable. One of the things he said to this reporter was, you should put in the, in the first line that Clinton has a, I think it was militaristic or muscular... Foreign policy, or like muscular policy. Wow! So like to to make it seem she's more powerful and. and oh, that's and, interesting. But like that was really just thought of that.
1: That's very interesting because you know in some ways also that male skewing gendering is could be seen as a liability right. pr wise for her right right I mean, right.
2: I mean she. I, being too tough, too yeah, hawkish. Right. You know. I I don't know what the public perception exactly is on this, but I mean. Hillary Clinton is I consider her a very hawkish candidate. I she mean, is. she's she's just in some ways, she I would think her foreign policy might be uh, even worse than Donald Trump's in some form, uh, mm-hmm. in my mind. And arguably because she does not understand or have learned the lessons of Iraq and Libya and the massive military interventions i mean trump in some ways i think he's learned a little bit at least in libya right. I mean, he's talked about Muammar gaddafi and and how deposing him was something that was a mistake and actually led to more chaos and and isis coming into libya i
1: have no idea what trump actually believes i don't or either would do right right but i i hear you yeah like. but on, <laughs> other,
2: on other issues i i think that she is somebody who is a who supported some of the most destructive yeah. foreign policy decisions. And so, yes, uh, a more person who keen to testosterone and, right. and, and r- making rash decisions is something that I, is not out of bounds for President Clinton.
1: So, so let's do a little thought experiment. Let's put, I don't know, eight-year-old Donald Trump, eight-year-old Hillary, um, <laughs> eight-year-old and eight-year-old Sanders. <laughs> Bernie Sanders in a progressive classroom. Yeah. What happens? Like, because if neurochemicals are having such a strong effect, and Donald Trump is Donald Trump in that sense, you know, how does he get along in that environment?
2: Yeah, no, it's it's quite interesting because <laughs> there's a lot of discussion around socio-emotional learning, and I find that when you have classrooms that where the kids have ample time for play, right. that actually helps them regulate their emotions and anger much better than if they were just kind of forced to deal with it on their own. Because I find that regulating emotions is something that a lot of kids learn through play. Researchers have concluded that very widely. So Um, the
1: socialization might mitigate the effects of the It might mitigate. I think it would make him less angry. Yeah, Yeah. I
2: think it would make him less angry and help him get along with people better. Um, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if he went to a very traditional school when he was younger. Um, I mean, Bernie Sanders, I think he would be somebody who would get along quite well. And just in general, I think he's a very nice, affable kind of guy. I mean, he grew up in poverty. Yeah. So Clinton, at least he grew up in Illinois, but a, a middle-class family. But right. uh, Bernie Sanders was a son of poor immigrants who had just come immigrants, Jewish immigrants. And, yeah. and so, yeah, I think he would be somebody who be a little bit more empathetic than somebody who uh, younger Donald Trump. I mean, Donald Trump, he, his father was a millionaire, millions right. of dollars bestowed before him. And so I think people... in because there's a privilege and privileged families, oftentimes I find they don't have the kind of empathy that you would see in, say, a poor working-class family right. because they've seen that on a, on a level, on a visceral level. One of the big issues with progressive schools is that, as I mentioned, some of them are very much so reserved for kids of affluent families. Right. When you just have kids of affluence mixing together, you're going to have major problems. And So yeah. when you don't have working-class kids and affluent kids learning and, and interacting with one another side-by-side, side, the problems I might come about from just a population where just privileged kids might subside in a more mixed population of, of children. So
1: here's here's something I want to say that's going to take us into kind of unpleasant territory, which is in a poor neighborhood where the incidents where like kids say their parents are out working right, all night, right, they're not right. as supervised, maybe more violence in the neighborhood or whatever, just right. because of the things that go along with low SES environments. And then they come to a progressive school where they're given like more or less an open environment, free reign to choose what to do and so on. You yeah. know, how do they create a stable environment yeah. when they may not have that at right, home?
2: Right, right. No, I think it's, obviously it has a lot to do with poverty. The trauma that kids bring with them to school needs to be talked about openly and addressed in a very concrete manner there was a film that's came out on educational trauma and how you deal with a more disadvantaged population that has been basically been exposed to things that are unimaginable for children like, traumatic yeah, is the right I word mean, yeah flint michigan for example i mean other other cities like baltimore have experienced massive environmental racism crime gang violence i mean like just uh, toxic stress poverty i mean those whole yeah. things have tremendous effects on a child's psyche and the way they learn.
1: Even their neurochemistry. Right. Know, and yeah.
2: It is something that schools need to talk about more openly.
3: Yeah. In the
2: schools where the kids need it the most, where they're crossing gang lines to go to school, yeah, yeah. they need adequate number of counselors. And and that's something, one of the things I've been reporting about earlier in 2015 was the Palo Alto Student Suicide Cluster. Right. Um, and I went out there, I wrote, wrote a piece for Vice Magazine. Yeah. And like immediately, when that thing happened, they, the people were like, Let's bulk up the number of mental health counselors in school. Like immediately, like it's just simple thing. Yet when you have kids who are exposed to toxic stress and unimaginable
1: violence. The response typically is that they crack down with more authoritarianism. Right. And so, right. you know, get them in line, get them right. in order. The schools right. As opposed military. to giving them the
2: resources that they need. Yeah, Because in these progressive schools, if you're gonna bring in children of color and children of poor economic status, they're gonna be very much, I think they would thrive. In an environment where they have the counselors, they have the, the support necessary, for them to adjust and, and work in that environment. Because I think the primary motive of these schools is to institute a support system in place. One of the networks and communities I talk about is in Cincinnati where they've they treated the school as a community center. So instead of just viewing it as a place of learning, right. they have the dentist or a nurse right. or a medical training center. They have places where poor children can come in and get the necessary medical and health care that they need. A
1: little bit what they're doing with the Harlem Children's Zone a as little well. Bit, I yes. mean, I, I don't know about their R- yes, pedagogy. Yes. But, I've never
2: um, visited them, but yeah. a little bit of that. And, and mm. like treating the community as uh, a place of engagement and of health care, because health care is, is not a right in this country. We don't believe health in this country does not believe healthcare is right. But if you give them those, just those basic resources and health care at a young age, that does have the biggest effects on a child. I think, I right. mean, education is right. important. Obviously, education is important, but I, I there was like a, a thing you had to choose choice. Yeah. I choose healthcare. Healthcare will make that person be much more successful later on. And I think you marry that with, with education. And that including with psychological health. healthcare right. so right. that
1: they're in a safe and secure exactly. internal environment. Right. Nikhil Goyal, it's been great talking to you. Thank you so much for coming on this show. I could go on and on like this, and so could you, (laughs) I think. But yeah, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. Really enjoyed it. And that's it for this week's episode of Think Again. I wanted to let everybody know that we're going to be doing this show live for the first time ever as part of NYC PodFest 2016. My guest is Sarah Jones, the Tony Award-winning playwright. And this is going to be on May 21st at 5 p.m. at Cake Shop NYC, which is in Brooklyn. So anyone who is in or near New York, please, please, please come out and join us and introduce yourselves. I'd love to meet you. Next week, I'm joined by the poet Sarah Kay. See you then.